Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. For many, summer means sun, sand, and a refreshing swim. But in Connecticut, a history of discriminatory practices often keep families and people of color from enjoying access to public beaches. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we revisit an episode from last summer, and later we'll hear from residents of two seasonal communities where African-American families have long found a welcoming home. That's Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard and Sag Harbor on Long Island. But now we explore here in Connecticut. Earlier in the legislative session, there was an attempt to limit cities and towns from charging exorbitant fees to access public beaches. Those bills died and frustrated activists who were pushing for more access to public beaches in Connecticut. This push and pull between shoreline towns and the rest of the state is nothing new. Our next guest wrote about it in his book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Andrew Carl is professor of history and African-American studies at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia. Andrew, welcome to Disrupted. Well, thank you for having me. You know, Connecticut has a very extensive history of the summer beach communities, and the presence of those communities is often well known but the history behind them is not as uh, readily apparent. Talk to us about what the shoreline looked like during the first half of the 20th century and who had access to those spaces. Yeah, so um, really in the early 20th century, uh, much of the Connecticut shoreline was still relatively sparsely developed, although you did begin to see the emergence of real estate developers who were seeking to capitalize on the growing demand for vacation homes, as well as the growth of bedroom communities in the southwestern corner of the state. Um, Obviously, uh, Greenwich, Westport, um, Stanford has been some of the more prominent early um, shoreline uh, towns that had a a long history before that. But um, in the early 20th century, you began to see um, the growth of these uh, private beach associations, which were clusters of um, homeowners who um, who developed areas um, along the shoreline for um, second homes. Uh, Many of them were folks who lived in places like Hartford and who who developed these um, summer communities that um, and then proliferated really um, in the first half of the 20th century as developers began to see that this was something that um, had a great deal of demand. So you have these affluent families who want a second home, who want a place to relax and have their family there. But what you also talk about in the book is that there were a lot of families who could not have access to that. In particular, Black and Jewish families were often excluded. Why were they not allowed to be a part of those beach communities? Absolutely. I think that, you know, written right into the um, deeds on the um, on the properties that were being developed in these communities were uh, restrictions preventing the sale of lots to um, to African-Americans, uh, Jews and other disfavored uh, minorities. Coupled with the growth of um, 
of summer beach communities were towns that were beginning to um, invest in uh, public beaches that um, oftentimes were really public in name only because they found other ways to restrict access to the shoreline um, through residency restrictions and um, other um, restrictions that really, um, you know, in many ways effectively limited the ability of um, African Americans um, living in the state of Connecticut to enjoy the shoreline. We talk often about deeds and restrictive covenants and how it was written into the property of who could have access. But you also chronicle the more subtle ways, as you just mentioned, of sort of solidifying the exclusive nature of that. And one of those measures is via parking and who could have access to parking and what it took to actually gain entry to a park. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I think, you know, this is something that... Um, had long been a part of the um, suite of uh, restrictive measures that towns used, um, and and I should say, I mean, you know, one of the one of the striking characteristics of these exclusionary measures that you see up and down the shoreline is that none of them ever had mentioned race in a sort of formal sense. Um, just as Jim Crow laws in the South, um, you know, voting restrictions and and the like, you know, often were very careful to surgically exclude certain groups without even having to mention race, and that and and this was definitely the case in many of these towns where you would have, say, not just residency restrictions, but also parking restrictions um, and other measures that really um, combined to make it difficult for people who do not live in these communities um, to enjoy access to um, public recreational resources. Now, that effectively um, you know, had a racial dimension to it because these towns also had um, numerous um, restrictions that prevented people people of color from living in these communities. So, um, you know, if you have, um, you know, deed restrictions on, you know, much of the property in the community, if you have other um, restrictions that make it um, next to impossible to live there, then, um, you know, having um, a residency requirement or uh, making, and then coupled with um, restrictions that made it difficult for out-of-towners to park near the beach, then the end result is, is that if you go to that beach on any um, you know, summer afternoon, you're not going to see people of color there. Um, and that and oftentimes, at least in its inception, was by design. This relationship between the public and the private, the relationship between what public taxpayer dollars pay for and who can enjoy them, sparked a lot of uprisings in the South in order to have access to public pools. And here in Connecticut, we saw some grassroots organizing to gain access to these public beaches and public spaces. And your book follows a number of people who were active in that, but one in particular is Ned Cole. Why was Ned Cole such an integral part of that fight here in Connecticut? Yeah, so Ned Cole was a social activist who got his start in Hartford in the um, early 1960s, trying to develop a, a what he described as a domestic peace corps aimed at addressing issues of urban inequity um, and the challenges facing um, poor minority communities in Hartford, New Haven, and other um, cities. Um, you know, beginning in the Northeast, but soon his organization, Revitalization Corps, uh, expanded across the country. And one thing that really stood out to Ned Cole and the um, the volunteers who worked um, in Revitalization 
Digitalization Corps was that for children living in Hartford, living in um, urban neighborhoods, there were very few recreational options for them in the summer. You know, um, cities were disinvesting in public recreation during these years. There were few swimming pools or other play safe places to, for children to play during the summer. And in fact, you know, one of the big issues happening in, in cities across the country in the late 1960s during these urban uprisings was the fact that you know, there were shockingly high numbers of children who were drowning in, uh, in dangerous waterways, who were um, getting hit by cars because they were playing in streets because they had nowhere else to go to play. And so this, you know, recreation and the, the recreational inequities that, um, that characterize much of um, America then and now were a major issue that were galvanizing um, unrest and demands for justice. And Ned Cole saw that. And in fact, you know, listening to the, the mothers and parents of children realized that something needed to be done. Um, and so what he stumped, what he came upon was the idea of why don't we rent some buses and start bringing children down to the shore in the summer, give them a day at the beach. Um, and you know, for many children growing up in a city like Hartford, you know, the Connecticut shoreline might as well have been on the other side of the planet. I mean, this was not a place that many of them had ever gone to or ever seen. So what began innocently enough as, a, as you know, a trip to the beach um, soon became a cause and soon became protests because they realized just how um, difficult it was and how many barriers had been built um, to prevent um, children from Hartford from going there. Um, so that really spawned really beginning in the early 1970s and continuing throughout the decade. Um, every summer, um, they would be bringing kids to the beach but um, to play, but also to demand the right to play. Ned Cole was a white man in the 1960s and 70s demanding equal access primarily for children of color, but people of color more broadly. How was that received? How was he received by the families that he was advocating for and with, but also for the broader community who saw him challenging what had worked for decades for so many people? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, um, he was uh, a very controversial figure. Um, you know, every, seemingly everyone in Connecticut had a strong opinion about Ned Cole, positively or negatively, during the time in which um, they were most active. I would say that you know, one thing that's important to mention, and I, and I stress throughout the book, is that he was not operating alone. Um, this idea of, of expanding recreational access to um, um, urban children was one that came to him from the mothers who's, um, who were volunteering, primarily a group of African-American women in Hartford who were really working alongside of him, who were um, chaperoning trips and who were really pushing this issue um, to the fore. So it was not something that he just sort of um, came up with on his own. Um, certainly many um, homeowners and residents of shoreline communities took exception to the charge that, that these types of beach access restrictions were racially motivated. And so it was something that was you know, really, it was a divisive moment, but also in retrospect, many would say that um, Overall, it did a lot to move this issue forward and help to kind of expand access more broadly and, and really bring attention to this issue that many had ignored for too long. 
I'm always struck when we think about history in this country that there always seem to be steps toward progress and then other actions that tend to undermine or try to gut that progress. And when we think about access to the Connecticut shoreline, that is one of those spaces. So the state Supreme Court ruled in 2001 that banning non-residents from beach access is unconstitutional. But even today in 2021, having access continues to be a hurdle. What do you see as the legacy of those discriminatory policies and practices and how it shapes where the state is today? Yeah, I mean, sadly, one of the legacies are these parking restrictions and other uh, measures that um, that work to limit um, access um, to non-residents um, from shoreline um, public or shoreline towns public beaches um, this is something that um, proliferated after that 2001 court case that you mentioned um, the case of brendan laden versus the town of greenwich and um and in that case as they only address the issue of these resident only uh, restrictions, namely that if you could not, if you were a town and had a public beach, you could not limit the, pu- you could not redefine the public as only um, constituting the residents of your community. That if it was public, it had to be available to the entire public. Um, but they didn't say anything about other restrictions. And so, you know, one thing that began to happen after 2001 is that towns like Greenwich, Madison, um, other towns that had had a history of, of um, exclusion along their um, public beaches really leaned in hard to making, um, you know, to adopting parking restrictions, removing public parking spaces, um, requiring non-residents to jump through a host of hoops in order to even get a, a beach pass. But on the other hand, one thing that I think is also a legacy of the activism that Ned Cole and others had done in previous generations was that we still see that today. Um, you know, there's a group right now that's very active in trying to um, expand public access and defend the public's rights to, to lands that belong to everyone. Um, the Connecticut Coastal Access Defense is an organization that has um, really um, from, became active last summer um, as they as as residents became troubled by the fact that you know during the pandemic um, it seemed as if um, some towns were using the pandemic as an opportunity to um, push to um, to enact restrictions um, that might have been motivated in issues of race and class rather than public health and so you know we can debate whether whether or not that's good policy or not but i think you know in this case what it did do is it galvanized a lot of citizens who are who are very concerned about um, beach access restrictions and you know restrictions to public space in general i think there's been um, alongside of this long history of exclusion there's really a long history of social activism in connecticut that i've um, tried to tell in this book One of the other long histories of this process is that the people who originally were able to buy property in these shoreline communities, by and large, were middle class families and now over time have generated and accumulated tremendous wealth, generational wealth that they can then pass on. So it makes it more difficult when you talk about how that wealth becomes politicized to influence what happens in the state. Earlier this year, a bill that would have banned officials from charging non-residents higher fees failed to even get a vote. What would you say, Andrew, to people in this state who are concerned about these legacies, who want to see a change and, and do something different? 
what would you say about how local communities can address this history and really reverse those wrongs? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point and, and it's certainly one that um, opens the window onto how these issues like beach access are really part of a broader um, set of challenges um, toward making a more integrated and inclusive society for everyone. And I think, you know, for one, you know, just simply opening up shorelines um, to the public without addressing the underlying issues that prevent many um, low and middle income people from living in these communities is going to have a limited impact. So one thing, again, another issue that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with is the push to adopt more inclusionary zoning ordinances in many of these um, wealthy communities to allow for a more mixed income housing, to make it possible for um, people of a variety of backgrounds to live in um, shoreline towns and to live it, you know, across the state and to really break down these persistent um, barriers to access, um, both in terms of housing, um, in terms of schools and in terms of um, opportunity. So this, I think, is one where, you know, beaches are not, you know, the kind of, you know, the driving force of these um, changes, but they really reflect a larger set of practices that work to um, build walls um, that divide us as a society. Um, and I think that's um, hopefully something that uh, my work has drawn attention to. One other thing that your work draws attention to is how in the face of those exclusionary practices, communities often collapse inward and build their own communities in this act of resistance, but also a space of respite and resilience. What is the legacy of Connecticut not having that type of space? We see it Sac Harbor uh, in New York, or we see Oak Bluffs and on Martha's Vineyard. What's the legacy of Connecticut not having that space? Yeah, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the sort of, um, one of the things that began to happen, especially in the 1970s, as Ned Cole and others were pushing for to open up the shoreline, was that many towns kind of um, closed ranks and many, especially beach communities as well, really um, adopted what could be described as forms of defensive localism, aimed at actually making it harder for, um, the state and for communities to adopt more comprehensive solutions to these problems, um, to um, allow for public access more broadly, that they really um, you know, adopted a, um, you know, policies that made it more difficult to live in these towns. And this, this had a, and I, one thing that I point out in the book um, is that these types of exclusionary um, politics um, had an environmental impact as well. Um, one thing that I, I noted is that you know many of these towns were um, adopting measures that were aimed at making it harder for say mixed income people to live in their communities, but in doing so, were doing damage to their environments. So, for instance, you know towns like Madison have adamantly adamantly refused to adopt um, public wastewater treatment, and in part that was motivated by their fear that if you um, um, that that would open the door toward mi more mixed income housing for more dense housing. Um, but in the process, that was actually, you know, we're, you were finding that septic tanks were leaking into Long Island Sound, that there was a lot of environmental damage that was actually being caused by um, these exclusionary uh, measures. And so I think, you know, one, one thing that um, this story can also point to is how exclude, you know, the types of um, exclusionary measures that we, we saw also really had um, damaging um, environmental impacts alongside of their um, societal impacts. 
The beauty of having historians tell these stories is that you are able to see how interconnected all of these things are and really the impact that it has on each and every person in the state, not just right now, but legacies that last for generations. Andrew Carl is professor of African-American studies and history at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia. He's author of Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. After the break, the innkeeper of one of Martha's Vineyard's most historic inns talks about how her family helped create a black haven in Oak Bluffs. And later, a longtime resident of Sag Harbor shares her relationship to that special Long Island community. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're listening back to an episode from last year about beach access and coastal communities. Later, we'll hear about an historical African-American beach community on Sag Harbor. But first, let's head to Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard is often known for its fancy homes and being a favorite vacation spots for former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. But for many African-Americans, the vineyard signifies so much more. The town of Oak Bluffs has long been a summer getaway for African-American notables like Spike Lee and Henry Louis Gates Jr. But it wasn't always that way. In the years after the Civil War, the town was home to a small whaling industry, and it included a small population of black whalers who lived in Oak Bluffs. It wasn't until the founding of the Inn at Shear Cottage that the community started to resemble the place it is today. Many prominent town residents first visited Oak Bluffs, thanks to Shearer Cottage. And today, Oak Bluffs continues to host the majority of the island's African-American visitors. Lee Jackson Van Allen is innkeeper of Shearer Cottage. Allen is a descendant of the cottage's founders and a full-time resident of Oak Bluffs. Lee, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. You are an innkeeper for this cottage, 
but the history of the cottage is connected to your great grandparents, Charles and Henrietta Shearer, who were part of the first generation of Black Americans to experience freedom in this country. Tell us a little about their life and how the Shearer Cottage came to be. Charles Shearer was born in um, Lynchburg area. Um, he called it um, Spanish Oaks, which is an area in uh, Appomattox County. He um, was the son of the plantation owners, member of the plantation owners family and their black slave named Matilda Giles. He did start studying at uh, Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute, one of the first classes. He graduated in 1880, and I'm told that he taught there for a short period of time where he met his wife, Henrietta Merchant. Now, Henrietta Merchant was born in Lynchburg to one of the oldest free Black families in Lynchburg, and she attended Hampton they were married and they taught for several years in the Lynchburg area. And I know that they decided to move north for a better and freer life. They came to Massachusetts in the early um, 1890s and they were introduced to Martha's Vineyard by um, the fact that child, Charles attended religious services on the island. He was a member of the um, Tremont Temple Church, Baptist Church in Boston, and he attended Baptist services on Martha's Vineyard. Henrietta and he grew to love the island, and in 1895, they bought their first home on Martha's Vineyard. Henrietta wanted to help support her family summers on the island. And she decided herself to open a cottage industry, a laundry. And she bought a piece of land in the highlands of Oak Bluffs overlooking the Baptist temple. It's her name that's on the deed. She was a very smart, strong woman. Now in the North, Charles found work as the head waiter at two very fine prestigious hotels in Boston, the Young's Hotel and the Parker House. So hospitality was in his blood and he decided to open an inn that catered to African-Americans who were not welcomed at most of the other establishments on Martha's Vineyard. And it opened in 1912, in 1917, after Henrietta passed, um, they closed the laundry and devoted all their efforts to the inn. And we had many, many quite nationally, uh, well-known nationally as well as internationally guests stay at Sherrick Cottage from the very beginning, uh, including um, Paul Robeson, Ethel Waters, um, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. brought his family, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who came as a young man himself, the congressman from New York, Harry T. Burley, that he's credited with saving the Negro spirituals by putting them down in paper because before that they were passed along mostly by word of mouth. The first African-American psychiatrist, Solomon, Dr. Solomon Fuller, and his wife was a well-known sculptor, Mita Vogel Fuller. And the, Madam C.J. Walker, the, uh, known as the um, first woman, black or white, 
self-made millionaire. So the list is, is quite special and they came for years and many of these same families bought homes on Martha's Vineyard. Today, the Fullers have property on Martha's Vineyard, the Powells, uh, the Downings, Dr. Downings came from Roanoke, Virginia. And um, they, they love the island as, as the sheriffs did and decided to set roots there. So many of the families go back many generations. First, we're introduced to the island by Sheriff Cottage. There are so many layers to the story that you just shared. And I want to center for our listeners what it meant for your family members to relocate from the South to the North or the Northeast, all the things that they had to overcome, all of the challenges that they had to do to persist. And for a woman to be the landowner here and really set this in motion, it really set the family apart in terms of what people thought the experience would be. All of that then leads to the very august list that you just went through of people who stayed at the end. What was it about the cottage that made it so special for the people you mentioned and their families to go and visit? Well, they, first of all, were excellent cooks from the South. Many of the family members, the merchants came up and supported uh, the inn, and they served wonderful meals, including Parker House rolls. That, as I said, Charles Share was connected with Parker House, and uh, also the warm has hospitality that was provided by uh, the Sharers and their guests. Uh, I was told by Dr. Solomon Fuller's son uh, one day when I met him. He said, as a young man, as a young child, really, he enjoyed his summers on Martha's Vineyard because at any one time there could be an impromptu concert with Lillian Avanti or Roland Hayes or Harry T. Burley. And I think the environment was so warm and welcoming. And, and it is truly a story of perseverance of a family, uh, the love that they had for the community, the tolerance that the Oak Bluffs community uh, provided the sheriffs. You know, so many of um, other resort areas either died out or were destroyed, but there was a tolerance on the island for uh, the sheriffs. And I, I think that may be because of the island's history uh, with Native Americans, the Wampanoags, and also the whaling industry, who many of those participants were people of color. I think sometimes people forget just how difficult it was for African-Americans, even in the North, even though the North was portrayed often as this sort of land of harmony where people could go and be free. To have a respite like the vineyard that could become a safe haven for people where they could be welcomed, but also be able to thrive. We see that continuing so that even now in 2021, Martha's Vineyard, Oak Bluffs in particular, have become these cherished destinations for African-American families. There are festivals and networking events and you know organizational-based activities that draw Black families to the island every year. And I will tell you, Lee, that my friends think that it is blasphemy that I have not yet visited the island. I have to change that. And I think you're, you, you may be the person to help me change that. What is it about Oak Bluffs that makes it so special today that connects to what it meant for your great grandparents and their contemporaries? 
Well, uh, as I said, Oak Bluffs was an area, especially in the highlands of Oak Bluffs, where Sherrod Cottage was born, where African-Americans were able to buy property. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't discrimination on the island, you know, in other areas, but for whatever reason, the highlands of Oak Bluffs seemed to be a conclave for African-American families. Many of them are the first families that uh, owned property on the island, such as Dorothy West family, the Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the congressman and his wife. So many of those families were right in that area. And it's continued to be the heart of the African-American community. And during the 20s, when Shara was, you know, going so strong, it was the heart of the African-American community. There were um, some of the very first meetings of the Martha's Vineyard NAACP uh, were held at Sherrick Cottage. Some of the first meetings of the cottages uh, were held at Sherrick Cottage. And um, that whole civic uh, involvement has always been part of Sherrick Cottage, in addition to the hospitality. And uh, we hope to continue that, you know, as the time goes forward. But it hasn't been easy. There were times when we um, had to mortgage the property. There were years that were lean years that the family had to put in their own money to support the property. But there was always this underlying philosophy that we would never sell the property that Charles and Henrietta worked so hard against many odds to uh, provide this legacy for their family. So we are now six generations of our family that have been uh, living full-time or seasonally on Martha's Vineyard. And we hope to continue that. There is a legacy for your family. There is a legacy for African-American communities. There is a legacy for this country more broadly that is connected to the cottage. It is or was included in the Negro Motorist Green Book, It's featured at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture that is located in Washington, D.C. What is the story of that legacy that you want people to know about what it means to have this in your family and to create this haven that will endure throughout generations? Well, I will say it hasn't been easy. It's there were um, times when some of the members who were not interested in, you know, operating the inn said, let's sell the property. But there was always that group of the family said, no, no, we must keep it because we're so proud of what they accomplished. But also through the years, uh, Lincoln Pope and his wife, Gloria Pope, who met at Sherrick Cottage, um, they helped with their friends start the Oak Bluffs Tennis Club. And that, that went on for like 40 years and it was a great activity. Um, for this resort. And Black people as well as white people joined in the competition. I understand Arthur Ashe came to visit one year. And so these are the kinds of activities that the uh, sheriffs were very much involved in um, bringing to the island. It was enjoyed by so many generations. It sounds like Shara Cottage is a womb for Black experiences on the vineyard, but again, representing that experience across the United States. What does Martha's Vineyard mean to you? 
Well, you know, I often say to my children, what would my life be like without Martha's Vineyard? Not only did I meet my husband at Sherrick Cottage when he was working there, my parents met at Sherrick Cottage. My mother, Doris Pope Jackson, met her husband, Herbert Jackson, at Sherrick Cottage. My son met his wife on the Inkwell. So you see, I just can't separate my life. I can't separate Martha's Vineyard from uh, and Oak Bluffs from my life because it, I've been here every summer of my life. My very first summer was uh, spent on Martha's Vineyard, much of the time at Cherry Cottage, with pictures of me as a baby. And then my mom bought her home. And uh, it, it's hard for me to think what our lives, generally speaking, would be like. It's, it's hard for me to even imagine. My Many of my dearest friends who we met as teenagers, they also have retired on Martha's Vineyard as I have. And we still have a bond that goes back generation. When you think about the future for the cottage, when you think about the future for the island, what would you like to see happen so that that experience or those communities are more accessible and more welcoming for people who may come? Well, I, I think that actually, Martha's Vineyard is welcoming to, to all people. I, I really do believe that. I think when um, President Clinton came, it, it brought an interest in the island and in the African-American history on the island, which in turn brought an interest in the history of Sherrod Cottage. Because, you know, a lot of people, they knew about it, but it, it, it wasn't as important as it now over the years has become. And, uh, of course, President Obama coming to Martha's Vineyard. Again, it's brought such attention to our history, given how many more and more African-Americans, as well as other families, look at Martha's Vineyard as a multicultural haven. I can't see it do anything but go forward. Lee Jackson Van Allen is innkeeper of Shara Cottage in Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. To see pictures of the historic Shearer Cottage, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. When we come back, a conversation with Sag Harbor resident Erica Stanley Doton. She'll talk about the history of the Long Island town and why she's working to preserve its culture. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Much like Oak Bluffs, the Long Island community of Sag Harbor holds a special meaning for many African-Americans. The town was founded in the 1800s, but it wasn't until the 1930s that it became a destination for Black families. That's thanks to the work of two sisters named Maud Terry and Amaza Lee Meredith. The community flourished and became an important beachside retreat for Black New Yorkers. Erica Stanley Dotton is a third-generation resident of the Azores community in Sag Harbor. Erica, welcome to Disrupted. Hi, thank you for having me. 
Now, as the rest, the neighborhood that is near and dear to your heart is part of a group of historically black communities in Sag Harbor that's more commonly called Sands for, for Sag Harbor Hills, Azarest, Nineveh subdivisions. Talk to our listeners a little about why Azarest is this important neighborhood and how it came to be. Azarest was founded in 1947. Um, before the three communities, you know, coined the, the acronym SANS, each neighborhood was its own, but it's, it was basically an enclave um, of beachfront property, actually, um, that ran from Azurest at the beginning all the way down the beach in South Harbor. We're on the Gardner's Bay side, and those were historically all Black-owned homes along this beachfront. And so then the neighborhoods kind of were built out from that. And so it came to be because many Black folks, educators, mostly from Brooklyn and Queens, would, you know, summer with their kids. And, you know, start out, my grandparents would go to Poconos or, you know, they would go upstate to the Catskills. And, and then, you know, during segregation, they started getting pushed out of those places. And so, you know, these are the middle-class folks. It's not like they were rich or anything. They were just really, they had the time and they wanted to go somewhere and, and, and be with their kids and swim and all that. And so... Sac Harbor was discovered by, you know, it was already, it was Sac Harbor as a town was historically a whaling village. Um, and because it was a whaling village, it brought together Native Americans, free Black people, and also working class white folks who lived there. So they all actually lived in the community together um, for many, many years. And this is going back into the 1800s. And so when two sisters, one's Maud Terry, discovered this place, like, oh, wait, this is like a cool part of town that nobody knows about because it's not it's north of the ham the rest of the hamptons it's on the bay side it's not on the ocean side you know it's not as easy to get to you know it was kind of like land that nobody thought of or wanted and so as we do you know it's like something that we can have and it was it was something that you could buy and so they actually ended up the two sisters actually ended up buying a bunch of land there and then they started selling it to their friends and so that's how these communities formed. There was word of mouth in the beginning. And then like folks started buying land and, and building their houses. My grandparents were renting houses out there for a few summers and then they bought their land and built the house that we're in now. And so it's a family house. And it's still like that today. I mean, it, it's obviously changed a lot, but um, that's how the neighborhoods actually came to be. One of the things that I think is so important for our listeners to understand is what it took for these two Black women, two sisters, to move from the South. And, you know, you mentioned being from Brooklyn. I'm from this tiny town called Lynchburg, Virginia, which is actually where the two sisters, uh, Amazingly Meredith and Ma Terry, were from. So to think about yeah. these two women coming from the South on their own and saying, not just are we going to create this for ourselves, but we're going to create this for other people. You mentioned going there for summers with your grandparents and your grandparents deciding to create this family space. What did it mean for you as a kid to know the history of this community? Or was it just, look, I'm just here for summer with my grandparents? I mean, it was that, unfortunately. I can't believe now as an adult and as a mother that my parents didn't break down like the history of Star Harbor. I had no idea. Like I knew we were around Black folks and, you know, as I learn more, and I'm still learning, I mean, as I learn more and more, it's like blows my mind that that this is, you know, I, just last year, you know, I was I was in Eastville, which is like the museum. It's like, a, you know, it's like a historical society. And it's all about, you know, the history of African-Americans in Sag Harbor and like 
they had this whole exhibit on this family because they found in one of the houses in the in, in the neighborhoods where you know before the Sands community was was developed, they found in the floor like all of these old photos and like history of like black folks from back in the 1800s. And like, so they're still like uncovering the history of Sag Harbor. And I, you know, as a kid, I had no idea, no idea. You mentioned that your children will be fourth generation members of this community. What's the conversation that you have with them so that they know this family history, but also their connection to this broader legacy? Yeah, I mean, I, every chance I get, because I mean, just again, you're doing the thing your parents didn't do. Like I, you know, I take them to the historical society. I'm showing them these old pictures. I'm telling them that there are great grandparents who they never even met, um, you know, were here. And I point out the little houses that they, used, that they used to rent before this house. Like, you know, I think my kids are much more aware, obviously, than I was at that age. Uh, they're almost eight and 10. They're much more aware that if they're in their lives of, of themselves and their blackness and their you know places and their roles. And so, you know, I'm always talking to them about, you know, how special it is and how amazing it is. Not that, that you have a house, that you have a family house in Sag Harbor, but that you're able to come here and be around all these amazing people of color too, and these families. And like you have a built-in, you can just walk around and you know everybody in these houses, you know, and that's a very special thing and something that we don't even have in the city anymore. And so I'm always pointing out to them that this is really special. Like you're walking around and people know you, you know, and it's, it's a real community. Let's talk about that sense of community because part of the attraction of Sands was that it was a respite and a safe space for people during Jim Crow, but also as your grandparents and their generation as they were being pushed out of other places, this became a, a place they could go. And now what we're seeing across New York, but you know, really across the country in particular spaces, how the changing dynamics and demographics of neighborhoods may be pushing people out, the increased cost in those areas, so that when things are no longer this sort of well-kept secret and become known to the broader public, it often displaces the people for whom that was their respite. What have you seen change since you were going there for summers to now coming back to Sag Harbor? It's just like gentrification everywhere else, even in our little town, our little village. You know, it's, it's you know, more and more people buying property there because it's less expensive than Southampton or it's more people, you know, understanding that this enclave uh, and it's quaint and it's small and like, you know, people want that, you know, they want that now. And so growing up, I would, I would say Sag Harbor and nobody even knew what I was talking about. Like literally like, where is that? What is that? You know? And so now you say Sag Harbor and immediately it drums up all of this, you know, I mean, it's a lot of assumptions too about Sag Harbor, right? It's, it's assumptions that anyone who's there because it's the Hamptons, because it's out there, like you must have money or you must have, and I, every chance I get, explain to people the history and, and, and communicate that, you know, it was actually started by a lot of middle-class, these are middle-class folks who may have owned a home, you know, in Brooklyn and, and owned, but like not rolling in the dough. They just saved and pulled it together so they could have this. What's changed is that now Sac Harbor, everybody knows about Sac Harbor. I can say Sac Harbor anyway, and, and most people will know it. And so that's different than, than it ever was. That tradition of taking nothing or taking something that others discard and turning it into something meaningful is so important to these communities, but it's a part of the African-American tradition 
overall of, of what you meant for bad, we will turn into good and then affirm that. It also means that in 2019, these communities were added to the National Register of Historic Places. And you mentioned this idea of culture. Do you think that's enough to preserve the tradition and culture of these subdivisions, even in the face of these broader changes? Or do you think something else needs to be done? Yeah, that's, you know, that's an ongoing conversation. I mean, literally, that's, that's, that's beach conversation in the summer times. I mean, we're still asking ourselves that. We don't know. We can't stop the developers. We can't stop. I mean, it's happening. That's happening too, you know? And I mean, what people do is communicate about that. And like, you know, folks that, you know, may not have gone to the city, you know, ordinance meetings or, you know, those kind of town halls and stuff over the winter time are now showing up because it's like, being more aware of what's happening in the in, in, in the town as a more than ever now because as people are coming in just making sure that we understand and see and, and and can have a voice you know because otherwise people just come in and do whatever and and and, and it's happened you know there's definitely some property and some real estate that's gone you know that, that that's been sold and big houses and you know just the vibe changing but i think for the most part folks are, are much more in tune with keeping it what it is because that's that's the appeal too, right? It's like the appeal to everybody else is the fact that it's this enclave. And so if you are talking to other brown people or, you know, just about preserving it and and if you're gonna sell your house, you know, trying to, you know, sell to families that that, that would fit and you know, that that would, you know, be interested in preserving the culture as well, like that's that's a thing. You know, what I think is interesting listening to you talk about the thing that you cherish the most or your favorite memory is this emphasis on the beach. And for so long, beaches were off limits to families of color, particularly to people living in areas where they couldn't learn how to swim because they didn't have access to a private swimming pool or even a public swimming pool to be able to do that. Erica, what do you think we should be thinking about or doing more broadly to affirm that accessibility and to also acknowledge that this didn't end with a piece of legislation, that this is an ongoing challenge for many people? Yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing challenge. And I think that what we need, what, what we need to do is, you know, talk more among each other. I think we also, like, just in terms of like what the reality is or the, I don't know, the, the logistics or the, the, what, what happened, like how, how do you, you know, own property somewhere like Sag Harbor? How do you like, you know, education, like educating each other about it, I think is, is a big thing. Like, you know, we don't talk about money in our community as much as we should and to, not about having it, but just like what that looks like, you know, what it is like, you know, and that's another thing I talk to my kids about all the time. Like, how do you, set this up for yourself how do you set this up for your family like what is you know and in, in terms of beaches and like like access yeah like you know understanding that that's important like you know being able to swim you know being able to for your for kids obviously for adults too like that's you know historically you know we, we joke but like that's a thing like it's it's important well, here's to the freedom to just be. Erica Stanley Doton is a third generation resident of the Azares neighborhood in Sag Harbor. Erica, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This episode of Disrupted was originally produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. We'll be back next week. <laughs>